Leading Ideas Talks podcast is brought to you by the Lewis Center for Church Leadership of Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. Subscribe free to our weekly e-newsletter, Leading Ideas, at churchleadership.com slash leadingideas. Leading Ideas Talks is also brought to you by Leading the Church in a Post-Pandemic Culture, a new Doctor of Ministry and Church Leadership Focus from Wesley Theological Seminary and the Lewis Center for Church Leadership. With this track, clergy will receive the enhanced knowledge, skills, and motivation to increase congregational and denominational service, vitality, and growth in the post-pandemic world. Learn more and apply by February 15th for May 2023 at churchleadership.com slash demon. And remember to stay up to date with the latest church leadership strategies and information. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos. How can church leaders better reach Gen Z? In this episode, Josh Packard shares findings from the Springtide Research Institute on what faith leaders need to know about Gen Z's religious beliefs and mental health. Welcome to Leading Ideas Talks, a podcast featuring thought leaders and innovative practitioners. I am Douglas Poe, the director of the Lewis Center and your host for this talk. Joining me is Dr. Josh Packard, executive director of the Springtide Research Institute, which maintains the largest data set of young people and their spirituality. He's the author of several books, including Church Refugees, Why People Are Done With Church, But Not With Their Faith. He's also the author of the study Framing Our Conversation, The State of Religion and Young People, Mental Health, What Faith Leaders Need to Know. Our focus for this podcast is young people and mental health. Josh, I just want to welcome you, and I'm so glad that you're joining us today. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. This is an important topic, and I'm glad to I'm glad to be in conversation here. I want to jump right in. Um, you all do an annual report with different themes. Uh, this year, of course, the state of religion and young people, mental health, what faith leaders need to know. But can you sort of share how you collect the data so that the listeners get an idea of the of your process um, when you're putting together the reports? Yeah, thanks actually for the opportunity to talk about this. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'm a former academic, but I promise I will keep this uh, as engaging as possible. We won't get bogged down in methodology. Um, we use this approach that we've been pioneering called data with heart. And what that means for us is that as much as we focus on the sort of classical quantitative, meaning statistics and qualitative like interviews um, you know, that academics would use, and, and we certainly do a lot of that. We collect about 10,000 surveys and for this project this year did over a hundred interviews with young people, but we do more than that. Um, we, we very much involve young people's voices throughout the research process. Um, so we've got a, a group of young people that meets with us monthly. And they, they contribute a lot to helping us shape these questions. Uh, sometimes we bring them back data or that we think we understand, you know, what it's telling us, but we're not sure. And they'll help us to say like, you know, no old man, like that's not the right way to think about that. It actually means this other thing, or, you know, they'll affirm that we're on the right track. And what we do though is, you know, we don't just, we're, we're still researchers. So as much as we listen to young people and try to center their voices in this process, 
we're also triangulating that with a good existing, you know, academic theory, our own quantitative and qualitative data as well. So it's not like it's just straight out of their mouths and onto our pages, but we are, you know, we are very much involving them throughout all stages of the process in some pretty important and formal ways, um, which I think makes that you can see it in the research, frankly. I mean, you can see it in the kinds of questions we ask. Absolutely. And again, I just want to name it so others can go to Amazon or other places to pick up the uh, annual report, The State of Religion in Young People, Mental Health, What Faith Leaders Need to Know. Josh, I was very interested in your report, um, having a son who falls within the range of your study. And I've observed many of the issues that you name early on in the report, like depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. What was a little surprising, though, is how high the numbers were that you discovered. 47% um, of young people reported being moderately or extremely depressed, 55% moderately or extremely stressed. What do you think are some of the root causes, in your opinion, of the depression and the stress? Well, first of all, let's, I think it's worth noting that these are self-report numbers, right? These are not yeah. clinical diagnoses. And, right. and so there's a number of things that are going, uh, that I think are going into that. I mean, let's start with the fact that uh, these, for, for Gen Z, talking about mental health is no longer carries the same stigma and it's not a taboo subject in the way that it has been for previous generations. This does not mean that all the stigma reduction work is done and, and we can stop thinking about it. That's not true. It just means that we've come a really long way. In fact, when Gen Z thinks and talks to us in the interviews about mental health stigma, they don't mean among each other. They mean between them and the adults in their lives. <laughs> like they know that the adults in their lives do not like talking about mental health, even to the other adults, but certainly it makes them uncomfortable for adults to have to have conversations with young people about mental health. And, and so I do think that there's a little bit more, what I would actually call right-sizing of that conversation. Um, the, you know, when I was, I'm 44, and when I was growing up, it was just, th these were not things that were open topics of conversation, at least in my suburban, mostly white community. I mean, these were things that were behind closed doors, if at all. And, and now you can, if you, if you spend any amount of time on TikTok or <laughs> Instagram, you'll see mental health is a, is an ongoing and very public and open conversation, especially for young people. So I think that's a big part of it. And at the same time, like, you know, so part of that is just about shifting the social and cultural norms about what's acceptable to talk about, right? But the, the actual realities of young people's lives have changed in some important ways too. And we can pick just a couple that I think have had a pretty big effect here, one being the pandemic. And the pandemic didn't change things for young people in this regard. The Surgeon General and other people were all over this even before the, before the pandemic hit pointing out that this was a looming and, and potentially already started crisis before we went into lockdowns and things like that. And the pandemic just accelerated those trends that were already in place. But we've also, you know, we're, we've, we've got this weird thing that's been happening. Uh, you know, when you, when you broaden out for just a minute and think about what social media and social media technologies mean for young people, they are not inherently good or bad. But we do know that those social media companies do not have young people's best interests in mind. That is not how they operate. They've got armies of PhDs who are trying to keep your eyes glued to the screen as long as they possibly can. That's what they're concerned with. And a 15-year-old's prefrontal cortex is just no match for that. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not because they're gullible. It's not because they're bad or weak people. Um, it's just their brain has have not developed in a way that allows them to turn those things off as easily as adults. And by the way, a lot of adults have trouble turning off social media. That's right. 
And so whatever, you know, they're, they're like bombarded by messages constantly, which are not necessarily designed to be affirming, which are not necessarily designed to help them flourish. Um, you know, it's, it's really designed to keep them looking. And, and sometimes what keeps them looking is not always what's great. Those are two of the really big things that we just, the, you know, especially with the social media part, we just haven't really developed clear social norms and parenting guidelines around They're They're emerging and people are getting better at it, but that certainly there are a lot of parents who are just like, whatever, I don't even know, what, I don't know where to start, right? I'm just gonna let them go. Right. And then we were, as adults, a lot of us were struggling with our own things through the pandemic, just trying to keep jobs, trying to keep food on the table, meet basic needs. Um, and as much as they might, as adults might have tried to, and, and actually have done some real things about mental health, they just couldn't do everything all at once. Um, and so there's, I think those are two of the biggest factors that have sort of pushed this to the forefront for Gen Z. Yeah, that's helpful. And we'll come back to the pandemic a little bit later. But I'm, I'm curious as a follow up, do you believe, um, and I, I apologize, I should have mentioned up front that this is sort of self diagnosis for the statistics, but do you believe that young people have a different understanding, or I should say different categories of mental health? Because even with older people, I think that we sort of work with very almost clinical definitions mm -hmm. that have sort of been given to us um, when we do talk about it, even I think you're right, we don't like to talk about it, but do you think they have expanded or understand mental health in different ways than many of us who are older understand it? Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, even when we look at the clinical diagnoses, I mean, those are, on, those are certainly on the uptick for sure um, with, with young yeah. people. But they are talking about it in a much more holistic way. Let's just take one, like one seemingly small thing, but that sort of has pretty important implications when you think about it, which is just the very term itself of mental health. For people maybe my age or and certainly older, a lot of times mental health was synonymous with mental illness. When we talked about mental health, what we meant was you're having a problem. What we found in our interviews is that Gen Z doesn't think about it that way. If they mean a problem, they will talk about mental illness. And what they mean when they talk about mental health is actually mental health. That you can, that we're talking about mental healthiness, we're talking about mental, pro, mental, uh, mental health issues or problems, but, but also, you know, what can I do that will help my, that help support my mental health and, and be, you know, healthy there in the same ways that I think previous generations have already made that switch for like physical health. Um, so just the way that, you know, older generations will think about physical health as not, you don't just, you don't only talk about your physical health when you go to the doctor because you have a problem or something is broken. You're also exercising at the gym, et cetera, et cetera, and calling all of that physical health. Well, Gen Z very much is on that same vein, except with mental health too. And I think that's really um, important to note because I, I think at a level, many of us know that, but we don't mm -hmm. often make that distinction. So that distinction between mental illness and mental health is an important one. Um, and the report certainly sort of helps to lift that up and to clarify it. So I appreciate you um, um, making that distinction for us. What I wanna move towards is that um, sort of the um, interesting and good news is that young people with a connection to religion tend to do better um, now, with that, however, it's a challenge that those in the faith communities also can do as much harm as good um, when it comes to helping young people. So I'm curious of what role should pastors and others in faith communities play in helping young people who are stressed or anxious 
And then secondly, sort of how do we make sure that when the issues are deep, that we help them to get the professional care they need and not try to solve those issues for them? Yeah, that's that's those are those are great questions, and and you're right to point out that at the extremes, and there you know there are ways that religion can be bad for you, and it's also worth noting that um, while yes, it's true in our research, it's true in all the the sort of overview of this research that Gallup put out for all the research they've done in this issue for the last thirty years, and it's true across all the academic studies during that time that religion is generally good for you. It is also true that increasingly, this is a self-selected group of people that we need to pay attention to you know, who is religion keeping away uh, in many cases and what are the mental health ramifications of that? Because living a life that's connected to something bigger than yourself, that's driven by purpose, those are good things. And, and, and there's a lot of young people who just don't feel like they have access to those things because they have an identity or they, they, don't, they don't have access to a, a person who is welcomed by a lot of the religious institutions or they don't perceive as being welcomed by those institutions. Um, but the reality is that what religious leaders have to offer is this, you know, that you are not alone in this world, um, that you are intrinsically connected to a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And that can be ancestral. That can, you know, be where you and your people come from. Um, it can be something that's bound up by an ideology or a belief system that tells you that there's some, you know, some theology there that communicates that you're a part of something that's bigger. And, but when, when that happens, lots of other things sort of click into place, especially for a young person who's spending, you know, most of what adolescence is, is trying to, to sort of figure out, is this thing happening to me the biggest thing that's ever happened to anyone in the whole world ever? <laughs> or is this just like a normal thing that happens? And how should I respond appropriately to that? I mean, that's what socialization is. And so when, you, when you've got that sense of purpose and that sense of connection, uh, those that navigation becomes a lot easier. Setbacks are just setbacks. They're not the end of the world, for example. And so faith in that way can make you a lot more, uh, or at least contribute to uh, much more resilience for, for young people who are experiencing a lot of, um, you know, the uh, stress and, and strife as, as growing up often, you know, as often comes with just growing up. But there's a big caveat, and you mentioned it, which is that in many cases, especially historically, for some reason, and not, not across the board, but with some faith in religious expressions, there's been a tendency to think that mental health issues are um, uh, an impediment to faith, that they're like, if, if they're an indicator that you're not praying in the right way if you're Christian or believing in the right way or meditating in the right way, etc. And, and so there's been a reluctance in some communities to actually seek out professional mental health advisors. I'll tell you, I mentioned at the beginning um, that we meet with a group of young people every month, and they're they're phenomenal. They uh, they take time out of their month every uh, every month to meet with us on Zoom for a couple of hours, and and we get to we talk about everything. And this whole project started because um, we knew this was an issue, and we were trying to figure out if Springtide had a role to play. Like, is there something useful for us to contribute to this conversation, essentially? And uh, and so we brought this to the group to say, like, we don't want to just be part of the noise. If there's nothing useful, unique and, and special for us to say, we just will let others who are better at this talk about it. And what this, uh, what convinced me that we had something that we should pursue was one of our um, ambassadors, that's what we call him. He said, there was a time that I was really struggling with some mental health issues. And I went to my youth minister and I was told to pray about it. And when that didn't work, I walked away thinking, great. 
now not only does my mental health suck, but my faith life sucks too. Mm. And it just like that hit me and it hit me because I felt like in that moment, I could see that whole scene unfolding because we talk to, I mean, I give a lot of talks, you know, we write to a lot of people, hear from a lot of people who are well-meaning, well-intentioned adults working in some sort of faith-based setting with young folks. And we talked to a lot of young people like this young man who was explaining the story to me. And in that moment, I was able to see like there's, there was no harm intended by that youth minister. Like they were actually using the best tools at their disposal to try and help that young person sitting across the table from them. And it wasn't good enough. And that's not a good enough response. You know, like that, that cannot be the whole of what we have to offer a young person who's dealing with depression or dealing with anxiety or some other really serious issue. It's an important part of a response. Faith and religion and spirituality can be really critical components to getting through um, those kinds of issues and working on them and, and sort of incorporating them and their treatment into your life, but they're not the whole response. And so I just felt like, gosh, here's a story that we have to tell that both privileges and understands and positions purpose and faith and belief and spirituality in an important way but also recognizes its limits and points to like, yes, this mental health thing that young people are experiencing, it's a real thing and needs real professionals to come alongside in that domain as well as in their religious and spiritual lives too. You've already sort of mentioned um, some of these key words, but what was also, I think, really helpful um, in this, the uh, report is that you share sort of a framework for faith communities that can be helpful in them sort of um, being a place that is prepared to welcome young mm -hmm. people and help them as they sort of uh, deal with the different mental health issues. And in that framework, you talk about connection, expectation, and purpose. And I'm going to let you sort of um, explain the framework, but I think what was, what I appreciated about it, I will say, is that you're not saying, like, if you do these sort of things, this is going to make you the perfect community, <laughs> but you're sharing it as a way of, these are things that you need to consider as you're thinking about the work you do with young people. And I think, again, that the nice nuance of that distinction is important um, for what it is you're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, I agree. And I'll say we also very much affirm the need for things like mental health first aid training and being able to connect to practitioners and resources. It's I was a professor for 15 years and, you know, I would see students come to my classroom and often just felt wholly unequipped to deal with the with some of the issues that I knew that they were they are facing and trying to navigate. I always felt very grateful that we had, you know, professional resources on campus that I could refer them to. But it struck me that like, we should be able to do more. Like, we should be able to, to help our, our organizations themselves should be able to be structured in a way that supports young people's mental health from beginning to end. And that's what we call, what we write about there is called mental health friendly organizations. So the issue, I mean, are young people going to have mental health um, issues? Are they going to have breakdowns and, and things like this? Of course they are. That's a, that's, that's a part of society. It's a part of, um, for some people, it's, you know, there's a, a complex mixture of social and biological factors at play there. And you're not going to eliminate all those. But we can do better. And we can prevent more of these issues from becoming crises. And, and we think part of that, part of the pathway forward there is by implementing those things you just talked about. So we'll just very quickly in turn, I'll talk about those three. 
that emerged from our research. So the first one is about um, connection. Really, it's about giving young people a place where they feel like they can belong. So they don't feel alienated in this world, especially when, as we know is going to happen as part of growing up, your entire social life at some point is going to come crashing down upon you. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, that's part of what it means to be a teenager in some ways. <laughs> Um, and I remember those moments distinctly. And so having a place where you feel like you belong and that you can turn to as in a community who knows you and cares about you un unreservedly is really critical. Um, and we've written about belonging. It's a complex process before, and it, there are some really clear steps that people can take to foster belonging among young people in their organizations. And the second one, though, is about expectation. And expectation is a little bit more complex. Um, we, we, we went back and forth about how best to frame this, but essentially there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that young people experience in many of the organizations where they kind of have to involve themselves, especially schools, where they, they know what the expectations are. They're very clear, and yet they're not necessarily being given the tools to meet those expectations. And in many cases, to add further to this sort of stress here is that they're given, they are given a set of tools and told that those set of tools will lead to the expectations that they're supposed to get. So they're given a tutor and they're, you know, they're told that if you go to this tutor, it'll help you get the grades that you're expected to get here. But actually those tools don't always line up with those expectations. And, and so even when those tools are used and they don't lead to the kinds of outcomes that are expected of them, young people start to internalize that. Why can't I do this thing that I'm supposed to be able to do even with these resources? Now, sometimes, it's just because young people aren't doing all the work that they need to do. I mean, that's that that needs to be noted. But a lot of times it's because the tools are not really all aligned with the outcomes that we're trying to get young people to achieve. And in churches, a lot of times this looks like theologies. So a theology, you know, like we're expected to, and many like in some places you're expected to be caretakers of creation, but you've got a church that doesn't, for example, like isn't concerned about the climate crisis that young people feel so acutely. And so they're trying to wrap their heads around this theology of that, that seems to not care about consumption or not pointing a finger at consumption or having anything to say about it, along with this expectation that they're supposed to care about creation. That doesn't make any sense to me, right? Um, and so align, the more we can align those and reduce cognitive dissonance, the more we support young people in their mental health. The last one is really about a sense of purpose. Do you feel like you are part of something bigger than who you are alone? Or do you see your story as being wrapped up in, in a story that transcends time and space? Uh, and certainly at least, you know, you and your neighborhood and your local community. Living with a sense of purpose like that is, is foundational to, um, to overall flourishing and um, being able to discern what's the right decision to make in a given situation and ultimately to your mental health as well. Great. I want to remind our listeners that we're talking about the state of religion and young people, mental health, what faith leaders need to know. I um, think that our listeners will really appreciate that there's a section on what faith communities should know. Um, and in that section, you talk about notice, named, and known. I'm going to focus on known um, just for a minute. And, and I'm wondering what you think about sort of this virtual space. <laughs> we're living sort of in a hybrid space, I should say, yeah. in person, but also in this virtual space. And how is it that particularly faith communities can really get to know people when it's only a virtual space they may have access to. That's wild, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, it is, yes. Um, that notice name, known framework, those are the three steps towards creating belonging. And 
the the virtual is i think it's a it's brand new territory obviously and um one thing we've been able to learn from young people is like they they would love it if you showed up in those virtual spaces as long as you can show up there authentically you know if they if they sense they you know like all young people over time they've got this really keen sense of when adults are trying to put one over on them and maybe even their default assumption is that adults are always trying to put one over on them and so you know when you show up there doing you know in those spaces sort of jumping on the latest trends but it's not really who you are they'll see right through that um but we should take their online lives seriously one of the a young person told me after a presentation about a year ago said um when the adults in my life when when they dismiss my online life, they uh, they disqualify themselves from the conversation of my life. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was such a poignant statement. And we started talking about that, you know, because I was asking her to explain more about what she meant. And she's like, look, not everything that we do there is really important. Most of it, in fact, is not really important. <laughs> but But a lot of it is really important. You know, like we are turning to places like TikTok and Instagram and social media for, um, you know, to explore what Diwali is. They're not going to Wikipedia and the, a lot of us don't live in very diverse communities. They're going online to find out what that is or what Rosh Hashanah means or what, what what's the difference in sort of overlap between Hanukkah and Christmas, for example. So they are doing a lot of religious exploration and that puts them in, their online lives are wildly diverse. And and so I think it, it's it's not so much like, do you should you be there and like be one of those diverse sources? I suppose if you have the institutional like capacity to do it and you've got somebody who understands that well and you want to do it, fine. But I think more than anything, there's an opportunity to engage them in what, you know, IRL conversations, in real life conversations, but about what's going on in their social media. Um, and, and sort of, you know, those can start really small, um, but they they often are a sort of gateway into talking about bigger and further explorations. One of the things we ask, I have a 12 year old, one of the things we ask him um, every week was, you know, what's the most interesting thing you saw on YouTube this week? It's the only kind of social-ish media that he's allowed on. We wouldn't dare <laughs> let him onto, you know, Instagram or Facebook or anything else, frankly. Um, but we do, we started having those conversations as just a, as just a beginnings of the steps into what's catching his attention, you know, like what, and and it tells us like, if you're paying attention to that, why, what kinds of questions are you asking? And it becomes the gateway into these kinds of questions. So I think that we can use, we can use social as a, as a way either to have a presence that helps to shape the narrative or as a sort of almost like a foil against which to help shape our interactions with young people, but we shouldn't just dismiss them. Right. Well, as we get ready to bring this to a close, and I appreciate this has been just a wonderful conversation, I want to give you a chance to, if there is sort of a thought or something you would want to leave our listeners with um, that really struck you from putting the annual report together, what would you want them to know? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, As I mentioned, I was a professor, I was a faculty member for a long time or for a while, and we always used to see mental health issues, uh, mental illness as a barrier to doing the thing that we were supposed to do, right? Like I, I, w- I was like, can we get our students some more support so we can get back to the real task of them learning? Right. Um, and I'm not sure that that's necessarily the wrong approach to take in a setting like that. But what we learned from putting together the state of religion and young people was that I think that might be the wrong approach to take in a faith-based setting where, and, and I know that for a long time, it has been the approach is like, can we, can we deal with these mental health things so we can get back to the issue of faith formation that we're really supposed to be here for? What we saw in the data though, is that 
engaging young people authentically and relationally, um, putting real resources into their mental health communicates a care and concern on behalf of religious leaders and adults to young people that young people often assume isn't there. And so actually doing one is in service of the other. This is not simply like, can we deal with this and move on to the real work? This, in many cases, if you do it right, can be the real work um, of showing, you know, showing what faith looks like in action, for example. Um, as a, a term that Christians a lot of times use is, you know, being the hands and feet of, of God. Um, and young people are, are shockingly lacking in those examples in their lives. Um, and so I think that this, this can actually be a pathway towards that if, if we take it really seriously. Josh, I really appreciate you being with us today and sharing, and I hope others will um, take the opportunity to read the annual report. I just want to share one more time, the uh, report is called The State of Religion in Young People, Mental Health, What Faith Leaders Need to Know. And I think that you will find the report just as insightful as I did. So thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us for Leading Ideas Talks. Please like and subscribe to this channel and click the bell icon to get updates for new videos.